Effects here, the you know the the la- you know there's a lot of um quotes from just random people through the album and mm-hmm. the laughter there that they use um I think in Brain Damage or it could be in Eclipse is is the laughter of a guy called Peter Watts and mm-hmm. I think he was he was just a, a doorman at Abbey Road Studio I know Peter Watts who died soon after the album was released was Naomi Watts' father the actress oh that I did not know. Yeah, I, I so, did not. I was not aware of that connection. So you can read her. Her father died early on in her life. He's the guy that does the funny, the strange, sort of crazy-sounding laugh <laughs> on the album. Those cue cards that was were what people were responding to. It, you know, asking questions, things like, you know, when were you last angry? Were you in the right? You know, and that's the kind of questions that they were responding to. It's just amazing, all those little things, which apparently was one of the last things they did on the album to actually place those voiceovers. Again, just adds another texture to it. Yeah, the one you just mentioned, um, last time you were angry and what did you do about that? The quote in the album, um, I don't I don't know, I was really drunk at the time. Mm. That was a quote by the guitarist from Wings who were recording around the same time. I do know that they got Paul McCartney to do it, but they didn't use Paul McCartney's voice, not because it was recognisable as Paul McCartney, is they think that he just didn't take it seriously enough and it didn't suit the mood of the album. So it would have been interesting if it was Paul McCartney on there. But, you know, wrong place, wrong time. He didn't quite get the gist of it. Who knows? Yeah, I just had a quick look. Um, Peter Watts died in 1976 of a drug overdose. Oh, no. So that's unfortunate. Um, and I just noticed he, I did make a note. He actually, he was on the Yamagama sleeve. Just just quite, you know what that is, Paul. Oh, oh yeah. It's a very hit and miss Pink Floyd album in my view. The thing about Pink Floyd's album is, like we talk about when it's released and in its current form, it's hard to really pick holes in it. And one of the things that I thought, like, how did it get to a stage where they covered things from a thematic point of view, linking, music, sound quality, all those kind of things like, you know, when you put together a concept, some ideas work brilliantly, some are still embryonic. So what did they do to get it to this place? And then I realised, even though we're talking about March 73, it was released, it was originally called Dark Side of the Moon, A Piece for Assorted Lunatics, they actually started touring that back in 72. And part of it was to get the album stronger, to see how it goes against an audience. And, in fact, you can go online and you can actually see 1972 Pink Floyd Rainbow Theatre. There's more than one uh, gig that they've done there where they've actually tried out some ideas. And you'll see things like the timing of some of their songs is a little bit different. The arrangement is very different. But there are two aspects that are quite different on those rainbow recordings to what we know now. And that comes to, like, one song basically called The Travel Sequence, 
which became like on the run on the final album. But when you listen to the travel sequence, it feels like a little bit of a blues riff. Pink Floyd always felt like it was all right and it didn't really work before they introduced the synthesizers, which we know now. So On The Run was then called The Travel Sequence. I'm really actually glad that On The Run is there, but it's also interesting to listen to The Travel Sequence. You have to go to the Rainbow recordings to hear that. The other one that really is different and had a different name back then was The Mortality Sequence. Graham, do you think you know which uh, song became The Mortality Sequence? I'm going to I'm going to say Great Gig in the Sky. You've nailed it. I know I've I've read that somewhere. It, it just it just rang a bell, which is cliche for the album. But um, yeah. When you listen to the mortality sequence, the first thing you'll pick up is how different it is to the Great Gig in the Sky. It also is striking that partway through the mortality sequence, you actually hear the Lord's Prayer. So you can see the theme is about mortality. So how did it kind of morph into what we know now? We know the piano piece that Richard Wright plays. Firstly, it should be acknowledged that that is a slightly reworked version of something they recorded for a soundtrack of Zabriska Point. But they always felt like something was missing. And this is where I think Claire Torrey's voice comes into it. And I think it just adds another layer. Like this is where someone's using their voice as an instrument. And, Graham, I think she completely nails it. But uh, you were telling me beforehand you've got a bit of background, you know the story about this. Yeah, well, Claire Torrey was a, she worked at um, Abbey Roads or for EMI. Mm -hmm. But she was approached by, again, he comes into it, Alan Parsons, to come and um, a bit of singing with them. Funnily enough, she, she went and recorded and she thought it went okay, but she wasn't really sure. They didn't really say much to her. She didn't really find out until the album was released that she was on it. She she was kind of happy back at the time because they recorded it on a Sunday or she went in and recorded it on a Sunday. She, she, she was paid double time. It's, like, it's just incredible that they didn't say to her, that's, you know, that's going to be on the album. Maybe they don't do that sort of thing. But um, I actually think they were in You trouble. can't imagine it any other way. I actually think they heard it, realised that that just hit the mark in a way they could have never dreamt of and were just subtly speechless. And it was probably one of those things that it so different, so perfect, they almost needed time to absorb what they've just heard. I've actually seen an interview, Claire Torrey, the first time she actually realised it was on the album was actually going to a record shop <laughs> and yeah. actually seeing that, you know, she's been credited on the album and she actually thought they didn't like it. Exactly. And don't you think it's incredible that they didn't get in touch with her say you're going to be on the album? That is odd and... I've never been able to get to an answer like that. The one thing I do know is that something like 20, 25 years later, she did try to claim more money for that song because she argued that she had some artistic input into that song. And when you actually listen to what she did and considering that she came in blind, uh, she had a strong argument. So in a way that I'm glad that for an undisclosed sum that I read, she got some more money out of that because, boy, uh, she was another sum of the piece that really made that song work. It's a beautiful, beautiful song to listen to. Every time I listen to it, I can't help thinking subconsciously it was uh, impacted by a Dylan Thomas poem. Maybe subconscious, but 
the themes to me, when you listen to what the voice is doing, how it's acting like an instrument, the emotion it's trying to convey. Uh, I'm only just going to read three lines of it, very famous Dylan Thomas poem, but you can kind of see, I hope, where you can see the connection. So just three lines, famous Dylan Thomas uh, poem. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the night. And if you know that poem, says the word rage quite a lot. And I can't help thinking because it is a song about mortality, something that we fight in a way. I think that was just subconsciously influenced from it. That's just a guess, but I've always thought that, yeah, it's the two concepts are just so similar. I think it's a really good one. Have we, just um, harping back, have we touched on any of your two favourite songs from the album or two tracks? Certainly when I'm talking about Great Gig in the Sky, I just think how to really go beyond the perfection of that and just how unusual it is but how brilliantly that it works. And I think the last thing that I'd like to point out, apart from like how Cleotori's voice acts as the instrument, the piano is just so beautiful, it's the only way I can describe it, is that there's a very quirky thing right at the end of the song and it's like the tape gets stretched. It's very subtle. And I'm now convinced for some reason Pink Floyd did it intentionally. You can particularly hear it on the vinyl, so I encourage any of you to listen to it very, very subtle at the end. It's finishing, it's over one of the piano chords, and you just hear it go stretch a little bit. Uh, For some reason, it's there. They don't seem to have ever corrected it. Why they put it in, who knows? Accidental mistake. I think it's more intentional. I think Great Gig in the Sky, it's, I think it's an all-time classic. They've really nailed it. The, yeah, that, um, that you, that, just jumping quickly, there's no way that could be accidental. Yeah. But you know when it happens, don't you? It's like, oh, that's yeah. a bit odd. Yeah, it's just, it's quirky, it's different and mm. unexpected, but couldn't couldn't be an accident. Yeah. The only question is, Why? And it's not something that I've been able to answer, but, you know, the first time here I go, hmm, okay, sounds like a rookie era, but it's not. Mm. The um, the other song that I think just absolutely nails it is the song Us and Them because I think this is a continuation of a theme of how empathy, disconnect and alienation can work, which seem to be a common theme with a lot of Roger Waters' writing. I think it first happened with Echoes on Metal, where he was exploring those themes. I personally think uh, this album could not happen without the song Echoes from Metal. You can actually see the continuity there work very well. But uh, when you listen to some of the lines on that, like empathy, disconnect, alienation, where you've got uh, lines like forward he cried from the rear and the front rank died. And you're thinking about that. That's a very typical thing with big decision-making. Sometimes the people who make the decisions are nowhere near the, you know, the coalface. It's the people in the coalface who suffer. Uh, then you get later on, the general sat and the lines on the map move from side to side. Suddenly the empathy's kicking in, like, what have I done? I'm now in a state of shock. That was my decision. But that's sometimes what happens when you're disconnected from somebody else's reality. 
And I thought it's a very, very clever kind of allegory that they've used. You know, it's hard to develop that proper empathy when you don't really know what other people are going through. Then you look at another line there, um, another stanza, sorry, pardon me. So there's down and out. And I'm pausing because I know how it goes down, down, yeah. down. It works very well. It can't be helped if there's a lot of it about. And then you're looking at that empathy disconnect with, without, and who denies it's what the fighting's all about. And then you think about it, a lot of the fighting's about, like, who has and who has not. Sometimes it's all about, like, jealousy. You've got what I want. Uh, I don't have what you want. I'm jealous. It's that kind of thing. And looking at some of the motivations are like why we argue, why we, you know, why we just seem to disagree. And, it's, and again, simple language, a very poignant question at the end, just pointing out some of the parts of the human condition that I thought just nails it so well. And you've just got a song that it's about seven or eight minutes worth where it just works so well. It's got some of like, you know, the little voiceovers. Again, Richard Wright with just brilliant piano. You've got the fusion of Richard Wright's and uh, Dave Gilmore's voice, like the harmonisation. Like, again, you have to pinch yourself. It's two voices, but it doesn't sound like it. I know there's some parts of the album where they actually double loop Dave Gilmore's voice, but you can certainly hear the two. And it's just one song where it just holds you, it just grips you, and just talking about that whole theme, you know, empathy, disconnect, alienation, you know, what's really all behind this? It's really posing some very, very good questions. Tough to really choose two great tracks, but they're probably, you know, some of my two personal choices there. <laughs> and it's cool. Um, I was going to say, Aston, Aston, sorry, Aston you know, then was originally, the music was written by Richard Wright, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm much earlier and then Waters penned the lyrics. That line, the last line you mentioned, and Hull denies what the fighting's all about. I love that part of the song because right after that he gets louder and when he's singing he says, you know, does he say, get out of the way, it's a busy day, I've got things on my mind. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's probably even more pertinent today than it was back then. And then you're talking about, you know, they're being aware of the rat race where, you know, that empathy, like you stop thinking of other people, like get out of the way. <laughs> I've got things yeah, exactly. to do. You know, like what about that other person? It's just, like I said, a lot about the human condition, which is certainly something that was very big for the band. I mean, obviously, you know, the lyricist Roger Waters. But the thing is that's very clear to me is they have all connected to the theme very well. You know, they, they've yeah. all seemed to have played their part. It is so hard to choose two songs, but... <laughs> Yeah, I think time's good. Oh, God. When you're thinking about even money, I even like the fact is the songs are, you know, very playful at times, but it still works. You know, it's probably... Yeah, and they actually, just quickly, they actually did, they, they brought out a film clip for money. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen it, have a look. Yeah. It's, it's, repeti- you know, it's a repetitive film clip, but it's, it's quite interesting to have a look at. And it was one of the earlier times that they really experimented with animation, which came into play yes. with a lot more of their other albums and particularly when they're mo- moving more into video and film clips and things like that to support it. Uh, wall. And also those concerts was the first real time they introduced that circular screen to show things like that money film clip, the time film clip, you know, all those kind of things to really create that whole 
you are at a concert, you are at a production, you are at a show, you're just not listening to a concert. There yeah, is they, they became the best at, I think that was around the time they started introducing a plane crashing above the crowd, um, which obviously went on, you know, they when I went and saw Pink Floyd the first time, they had the big pink pig and, and the animals mm-hmm. floating around above, um, totally different to anything I'd ever seen. There is, when you look at the doco of the making of Pink Floyd, there's a photo from those that rainbow tour, and I think it just summarises everything. These two girls, I guess they're in their late teens, early 20s, and it says so much about the reverence of Pink Floyd audiences back at that time. Like we might go to concerts and we might you know, dance or really get in the music or sometimes yell out, "What's play this song, you know, I can remember watching Billy Joel and people saying, play the piano, man. But they were talking about it didn't happen in Pink Floyd concerts back then. And these two girls were standing up and you could see they were totally engrossed in the music. One of them had their eyes closed. The other one you could see just completely captivated in the whole experience. And uh, I just thought, like, that really summarises, like, what the Pink Floyd experience was back then. It's not like, a you know, let's get down and, party and rock out let's get down and just listen to this experience see this experience that really set them apart wasn't it (laughs) you know you went there to solely listen you didn't go there to party it wasn't that kind of band no you wanted to hear the music you wanted to hear the words you wanted to hear where the story was going to uh they absolutely nailed that in a way that you know you haven't seen before there's a, this is really going on a bit of a tangent. I think there's so much about the album that we can talk about, but I think there's some other things too, like the sleeve is probably up there with the most iconic sleeve on an album that you've ever seen. Can you think of any other albums that are more iconic? Oh, for me, the, the cover of Alchemy. From yeah, Dyer that's Straits. pretty cool. Um, but it doesn't, doesn't rank as high as this one, I think. I can't think of another album cover. Or sleeve, if you want to say that, is as famous as this one. Mm. I mean, there's not many highest-selling albums in the history of of the world, obviously. But the ones that are above it, say Thriller, mm. it's not quite. Yes. It's not in the same ballpark. Um, they're nowhere near it. The Eagles, um, yeah. I don't know. Yep. What about you? Like Tubular Bells is one that comes to mind for me. It's pretty very, iconic. Very iconic. Yeah. But to me, it actually summarises the amount of thought they put into every single detail. You've got the very iconic symbol. When you actually open up the vinyl sleeve, you can see how the prisms work together on both pages. One of the earlier yes. times where you open it up and you've got the lyrics in there. A little, little note for you, um, Sid. The actual prism spectrum was designed by a guy called um, Storm Thorgerson. Mm-hmm. And that, that was on behalf of a request from Richard Wright, and he asked for a, um, he asked him to design something simple but bold, and I think he pretty much nailed it. One, I don't know, I don't really think it's that simple to me. I do think you know that works. Another thing that works well, I'm losing the words. I wanted to talk about a slight bit of mythology about it. Have you actually seen the Wizard of Oz in sync with Dark Side of the Moon? I haven't tried it, but I actually want to now. I've tried it for a while and I can actually see, but realistically, 
It's not 100% synced. Someone's been no. very clever with it. It is Am I right or wrong? You've, you've got to start the album bang on the, the third roar of the MGM line. Is that correct? Uh, that had been done for me. But you've got to remember that how many, how long is the album versus how long was the movie? You've got to slide it into certain parts. I really don't think they were watching Dark Side of the Moon. It happened to be a happy coincidence. Uh, and I think I the think other, other people, people also, yeah, some people also say that some of the Pink Floyd fans may be a, a little partial to the odd, the odd drug, mm-hmm. and maybe that makes it a bit easier to to sync things like that together. The one thing that uh, Pink Floyd, and they can probably safely say this many years later on, they won't really, even though they had that image in the early days, they weren't much of a drug band. And I think the only thing that they really acknowledged doing at the time was smoking a bit of dope, but all this kind of thing like heavier drugs and stuff like that, that was Sid Barrett days. I mean, the guys well and truly got beyond that. And the most interesting thing about the doco of making that album and even the following Wish You Were Here is how often the guys would do recording then play sport the next day. You know, you could see footage of them playing squash, playing golf, playing soccer, playing cricket. It doesn't look like the type of guys who are doing drugs at the same time. They wouldn't have the motivation. So it kind no, of dispels right. that myth straight away. And we, I think we've spoken in the past. There's, there's two main reasons why they stopped recording when they were recording. One was because the soccer was on. Mm-hmm. Do you know the other reason? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus. Yeah, Monty Python were on on the BBC at the time. They'd always stopped to watch. And yeah. they had another correlation with Monty Python as well, which I think you know about, Sid. They put some money to their movies. Yeah, they helped. I think they paid 10% of the budget for um, The Life of Brian. Uh, I think it was The Holy Grail. But the, it was The Holy Grail. It was yeah. The Holy Grail. Hey, no, but... You're right. I stand corrected because I think. They put in about £20,000. I also know that Led Zeppelin contributed to that as well. So there's quite a... I think you're right on Elton John. I'll have to double-check that one. But it gives you an idea of, like, all these uh, people who are becoming well-known musically, the artistic community, how they're helping out each other. And uh, there was certainly a lot of respect and reverence for all these really, like, groundbreaking bands. It was very, very clear. What do you think stands out? What do you think is the legacy of the album? Can it be put in a sentence or two? Probably not in a Mm -hmm. sentence or two. Um, A legacy perhaps would be that it's eternal. Mm-hmm. Um, because the album's still selling roughly half a million copies per yeah. annum. It's spent, in total, it's spent over 900 weeks in the Billboard Top 200, mm. and I know it holds the record for the longest continuous at 570-odd weeks. It, it's just phenomenal in, in so many respects that, like, I don't think you're going to find the bodyguard with Whitney Houston doing that sort of thing, even though it sold as many copies um, mm. early on. And I don't think even Thriller will still be selling half a million copies in, in 20 or 30 years' time. So like I said, uh, my my kids could probably, at the age of 14 or 15, could probably get into this album at some stage and, and enjoy it as much as I have. 
Um, so maybe that word eternal, I think it'll still be around when, when other albums are long, long gone, it'll still be around and just as popular and just as talked about and just inquired about and, and, Analyzed thought about, about. <laughs> yeah, and maybe over exaggerated or under exaggerated. Who knows? But um, yeah, there's not many albums that can do that. To me, it's there's. I agree with everything you said, but it's one of these albums where, and I'd say it's a lot of the Pink Floyd brilliant stuff. There is just a synergy. This was like the sum of the all the parts. I'm probably underplaying some of the roles there, but the thematic ideas, which is, you know, put to Roger Waters, putting them forward. Then you're looking at the um, unbelievable guitar playing. David Gilmore is just in a class of his own. The way that um, Rick Wright holds it together with a piano, keyboards, those kind of things, and what he's underpinning the music with just works brilliantly it just fits into place so nicely and then you also got to look at the drumming and that's Nick Mason it's not overplayed it's not underplayed it's just right you're looking at the sum of the all parts like you had four different personalities and if you throw in the producer maybe five you know connected to a theme the theme has really worked and what we've got something is that 50 years later we can still very very much talk about there was a formula that they stumbled across that just seemed to work for that band, and I think we are better off for that. And I'm really glad that uh, when Roger Waters said, like, you know, that whole, you know, starting gun thing, he knew the time was now, and I think we have benefited from that. I think it's just good stuff, and I'm glad we've been able to talk about it. I agree. We should mention that uh, to our listener... I, I think we might be in plural now. I'm not too sure. Uh, really? Uh, yeah. That's but uh, we're on Facebook, aren't we? <laughs> oh, I haven't checked. <laughs> well, it's a podcast with no name, and you can also find us on podnoname at gmail.com. There is also Instagram, so podnoname, you should be able to find us. This will be, This is our first recording of the new season. So I can say from myself, Sid, you know, thank you very much for sharing with us about our love of Pink Floyd and a very classic album. If indeed you want to hear about more music and more Pink Floyd, please inundate us with at least one email. That might be nice. And, uh, you know, we might follow through. I mean, I've always wanted to talk about Wish You Were Here, but that could be another day. If the listener wants it, I'll do it. And, uh, don't forget to don't forget to hit that like and smack that bell. One hundred percent. Before uh, you know it, we will be showing up in your automatic news feeds. Oh, that could be an interesting thing. Who knows? If we keep doing that, we could have enough money for merch, and what could happen next? So, I think for myself and uh, Graham, uh, thank you, and please tune in for our next podcast. So. Uh, We wish you were here. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Sid. (laughs) Hey, Graham, there's a rumour that we have our own secret episode. 
Really, Sid? Our own secret episode? Yeah, our publicity department won't promote it. Gee, Sid, is it controversial? Maybe. Is it just that bad, Sid? Most likely. Will it offend? Oh, I hope so. Well, Sid, how will I find it? Well, go to Podbean, Season 2, Episode 30. It's called... Beep. I'll certainly look up. Beep. Good stuff. And you know, if you keep your expectations low, you'll never be disappointed. So just remember, Podbean, Season 2, Episode 30. A podcast, no name, and you'll find that episode called... Beep. Beep. <laughs>